Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Welcome virtually to the Institute for Government for this event on how the civil service should measure success. This is the third of today's events on reform of the civil service and we're extremely grateful to Oracle for supporting today's conference. I'm Gemma Tetlow, Chief Economist at the Institute for Government, and I'm delighted to be joined today by four panellists. We have Professor Nairi Woods, who's founding dean of the Blavatnik School of Government, Lord McPherson, who's former permanent secretary to the Treasury, Aaron Manniam is Deputy Secretary for Industry and Information at the Ministry of Communications and Information in Singapore, and finally Simon Parker, who's Director of Strategy for the London Borough of Redbridge. The way we'll run today's events is each panellist will have five minutes for opening remarks, um, then I'll pose some questions to them, and then we'll take some questions um, from all of you uh, watching this online. If you have questions for the panellists, please do either put them in the Q&A function for the event, or feel free to post them on Twitter as well using the hashtag IFG Civil Service. And if you feel inclined and are happy to, please do tell us where in the world or where in the UK you're tuning in from. Um, it's very interesting to know who we're reaching. In his recent lecture at Ditchley Park, Michael Gove discussed the importance of rigorously evaluating the success of policies. The implication of his remarks being that government and the civil service in the UK aren't yet good enough at doing this. This is a critique that taps into some long-standing concerns about evaluation of policymaking that the Institute for Government and many others have talked about in the past. With there having been in the past a concern both that there was a lack of demand from politicians for rigorous evaluation of policies, and also sometimes a lack of supply, either the relevant data isn't captured, policies weren't implemented in a way that was possible to evaluate, or that officials didn't have the skills needed to do those evaluations. But there have been improvements over the last decade, and so today we'd like to discuss, is there still scope to do better? How could civil service measure performance, both of individuals and programmes? What's the role of the Treasury in doing that and how can it do it better? And what data does government need to collect and how to use it in order to evaluate policymaking individuals? So um, I'll hand over first to Nairi to start off our remarks. Good morning and uh, thank you. And thank you to the Institute for Government for putting on this event. Um, I agree much with Michael Gove that we need to really think about evaluation in government and accountability and performance. I think it's an excellent challenge to all of us. Put simply, the reason I agree is the way that we evaluate and hold people to account in government almost guarantees that people who are passionate and have purpose and a desire to serve the public join government and rather quickly become risk averse box tickers whose last possible resort would be to innovate. Now, why is that the case? Let me give you my punchline and then get to it um, with um, some reasoning behind it. What we want in government are people who are willing to take responsibility. And what we need in government is a system, including the role of politicians, that gives people the scope to take responsibility, to innovate, to take risks, to try something new because everything that's already been tried has failed. What does that take? It takes de-risking innovation. It takes giving space to people to try new things. And then a politician might say, well, then what's going to prevent some disaster happening? How do we control that process? And the uncomfortable truth is that precisely when you need to innovate, which is when you face uncertainty, just as Britain faces at the moment with COVID-19 and with Brexit, these conditions of uncertainty, which require our civil servants to navigate wholly uncharted territories, we want and need them to be taking responsibility for getting it right and trying new things. And yet what we tend to do is tighten and tighten and tighten performance targets and accountability. And what we do when we tighten that accountability is we keep saying to them, the minute you try something new, you're going to be blamed for failure. What you in fact need under conditions of uncertainty is a culture that gives you your control. Now that's uncomfortable for politicians newly coming into government. The idea that you should say to civil servants, you know what, we've got this problem of homelessness. We've got this problem of youth unemployment. Go out and try new things. We are not going to set targets. We're not going to control your every action because we know that when you do that, you just rigidify the system and the people that lose are the public who need serving. 
what we're going to do is give you scope to try new things. And the reason why we have confidence that nothing terrible will happen is because there is a culture in each agency, which is a culture of good performance. It's a culture of service to the public. So that's that's where I, I want to end up. So just two points along the way. We evaluate, the, the reason governments always want to evaluate is part for better people management. So we know who are the good performers and we can promote them. And partly so that we can make policy better. You know, what, which policies worked and which policies dif didn't work. The two problems that beset all kinds of evaluation are first, the, the, the idea that if you actually set targets to achieve, to evaluate success, those targets stop being indicators of success the minute you define them as targets. The minute you say to, and to a World Bank official, you will be um, evaluated on how many loans you give. All you do is get money washing out the door as happened in the 80s and 90s. So what you need, because, so, so the, the targeting problem is a very serious one. We've seen it in UK policing, we've seen it in UK health service, we've seen it across government. The target problem you can um, overcome either by really stepping back to think about what kinds of outcomes you want, and that's the work that's being done in the school on government on outcomes-based commissioning, to really step back and to try to really redefine outcomes in a non-controlling way. Now, what I observe is that when you get governments doing that, they keep trying to get, the minute something goes wrong, which it always will if you're innovating, then government tries to step in and start detailing and detailing and detailing and you lose that precious responsibility. But the other problem, and this one I really want to highlight, is the problem of timing. So the problem of targets is well known. The problem of timing is less, people pay less attention to. And that's it. If you hold a policymaker to account on a month by month basis, you completely lose the long term effects of what they're doing. They might need to restart their agency, and that might mean that over one year there is disruption in their performance, but it might be for the longer term good. But this is even more important with policy. So Harold Wilensky wrote a famous piece a couple of decades ago looking at youth unemployment programs in the United States for the most difficult to employ youth and the way in which residential employment programs had been tried. They'd been rigorously evaluated, which might sound great to politicians, but they were rigorously evaluated immediately they were implemented and they were therefore um, cast away for being not cost effective. When scholars went back and looked at those programs 10 years later, they found, they found that they were not just massively effective, but they were massively cost effective. And what the evaluators had failed to take into account were the savings on criminal justice, the savings on dependency on all other kinds of benefits. In other words, they, they took a precious policy and threw it in the bin because they did the evaluation in a very narrow, short-term cost-effective way without looking across government. Um, the same has been done, you know, Larry Katz's work, looking at um, a project that took African-American uh, children from deprived neighborhoods and put them in privileged schools. Again, because the program was evaluated too early, it was cast aside. Many, many years later, when scholars went back, they found it enormously effective. We can see this with CEOs taking huge bonuses based on quarterly performance, and then their companies going into bankruptcy. You know, so that's the reverse effect, where you are evaluating performance, ignoring the long-term effects of policy. So targeting's a problem and timing is a problem in, in evaluation. And the third problem in evaluation is that too often in government, it's a blame game. People are pushing and pushing for an inquiry into the COVID-19 policies of government. And my question about that is, first, is it distracting government from getting on and solving this crisis even as they're doing it? And second, show me an inquiry, a commission of inquiry, which has actually led to better policy. Show me where it is that an inquiry has been used to shape and implement in a long-term way a change in policy. I think there are some examples, but far too often evaluations are done, they're putting the filing cabinet, they're never read, and, and so in the end, they're just used as a blame game. And a blame game takes me right back to where I began this morning, which is that a government which is totally focused on accountability, on targets, 
and on command and control from the centre is a government that can never work in times of uncertainty such as that which is Britain is facing now. What this government needs, and Michael Gove puts the case for innovation extremely well, is a nimble and agile civil service, which means a civil service which falls back on culture as the element of control and permits civil servants to innovate, to take responsibility, to know that when they go to work, their job is to solve the problem of the homeless family that's sitting in front of them, not to tick a box which a politician has defined and to which a politician wishes to hold them to account. So I say, let's go for a new agenda that really gives and ensures that both people in political government and people in the civil service take responsibility for the jobs they do. Thank you, Nairi. Nick. Thank you. Um, well, needless to say, I think I agree with practically everything Gary said, but um, uh, I mean, look, you do need a performance regime in government. Um, people join the public service because they want to make a difference. And it's quite important that they know, you know, what's expected of them in making a difference. Needless to say, they tend to leave in the end because they discover that they can't make a difference because of the bureaucracy and tedium of, uh, of no doubt, um, performance management. But you've got to recognise from the start, this is difficult. Um, in the private sector, a private firm, rightly or wrongly, can focus on the bottom line, uh, profits, and um, you can assess, assuming you've got reasonably trustworthy auditors, what progress you're making. The problem in a lot of the public sector is that you have you know, the reason why public services are not delivered by the market is that there are a multiplicity of objectives. And actually, if you seek to prioritise one, you can put others at risk. So you, you, you have to recognise that in um, when it comes to performance management. I had um, the good fortune of being involved in uh, performance management across the public sector for 20 years. For five years or so, I was running the public uh, services side of the Treasury at the high watermark of, uh, of Blair, Brown, public service agreements and so on. I'll come back to that. And then as permanent secretary, um, I was involved in, um, I was on the pay committee for permanent secretaries. So for 11 years, every year, I would assess permanent secretary's performance um, reflecting extraordinarily long performance uh, plans. And that, so here with then a few sort of very brief um, recommendations. Um, first, um, I think any individual and quite frankly, any organisation needs to have relatively few objectives. Um, once you get beyond about six, it just starts becoming an appalling list which no one focuses on. That doesn't mean there aren't things which um, aren't important, but I think it's important to focus performance management on areas where you really want to raise the bar, make progress. And in a sense, the only people in the end who can set the overarching objectives for government is um, the, 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 the Prime Minister, the Centre, the Prime Minister working with the Minister of Finance. Um, and if you have a strong relationship between, um, I mean, using British institutions, number 10, and the Treasury, and genuine alignment, um, I think that really helps. You then want to have consistency. Far too often, um, objectives change um, if not quite year by year, maybe week by week, but certainly, you know, um, very frequently. And it's in the nature of data that it um, tends to be published with a lag. It takes time to assess it. And it doesn't half help where governments stick to an objective. I mean, I can think of one, which is uh, waiting times at hospitals, which broadly has been an objective of government now for about 15 years, three month waiting time. I know you can all argue about, you know, people gaming the system, but at least that is quite embedded and people kind of know what they're trying to achieve. 
Um, one of my objectives frequently was about, um, uh, you know, ensuring the government uh, hit its fiscal rules. But whenever there's any danger of the fiscal rules not being met, the government always changed them. And um, I didn't think that was terribly effective. So um, you want to have relatively few, you want them to be consistent. You kind of want performance regimes to stand the test of time. Um, I think by about 2005, the Labour government had hit on quite a good system. It had about 60 priorities and they were quite clear and um, senior officials' objectives were in very much informed by those um, uh, objectives in the form of public service agreements. The coalition government got in in 2010 and destroyed the whole framework um, at a stroke. And they spent then about 18 months arguing about what put it in its place. Something called single departmental plans were put in place, which were just long lists of input, not, if not pretty much input targets, actually. I mean, they're totally hopeless. And I, what I take from the Gove speech, actually, is that here we are in 2020, and actually Gove is making a very similar speech to the sort of speeches Tony Blair was making in 2005. But we've wasted 10 years um, when actually if we'd, if we'd stuck with a performance regime, we could have changed the objectives or, you know, we actually would have had a degree of consistency. My final point is about evaluation, really important. Um, governments are always very keen on it when they get in, in year zero. They tend to get less interested in it over time. I can't quite understand why. Um, and the problem with it is you need to embed it in programmes from the beginning. A good example was the Labour government's New Deal in 1998, where actually, you know, a percentage of the programme spend was allocated to evaluation. And, you know, you want to do this from the start, embed it in the programme, try and have lots of interim reports. Don't wait for the all seeing all dancing report five years after the event. It's then far too late. And um, final point, which does not, um, is not very popular in Britain, but has been in, in America and elsewhere, is be prepared to experiment. Have demonstration programmes, often with um, random assignment built in, and get people like the Institute for Government to help design and evaluate them because you can genuinely learn from that. Anyway, I've spoken too long, so over to you. Thanks, Nick. Aaron, next. Thank you very much, Gemma. Um, and greetings from Singapore, everyone, where it is um, 20 past 8 p.m. I wanted to start with um, the fact that this year has been a real bunker year for evaluation for us because instead of the single uh, budget that we normally put out as a government, we've put out four budgets, uh, you know, three of them in response to the COVID crisis. Um, and the total amount of expenditure that we expect from those four budgets together is about 93 billion um, Singapore dollars. That's about 65 US uh, billion. And this is interesting for us because, you know, we want to make sure that this expenditure is evaluated rigorously and, and surgically. And a lot of what I'm about to say actually uh, will echo what Nairi and, and Nick have mentioned because what we've been finding is, is, first of all, that evaluation is key in a highly iterative way. We needed to figure out from the start what sort of data we need to be collecting in order to do the evaluations as rigorously as possible. And we have many teams you know, monitoring the implementation of this, these four budgets very, very carefully. But, and I'm on the, what the committee that does some of this work. What's been really interesting is we meet every two weeks and we've been adjusting the data set as we go along. Um, you know, we started out with a set that's broadly stayed stable, but we've, we've kept adding new things um, because in as much as Nick mentions, you know, the importance of consistency and that base, what we found is there are always going to be emergent qualities, um, unintended consequences that we need to also be aware of. And, and we found that therefore we need to make sure that that evolutionary emergent quality is well taken care of. The other thing though that I've learned from this process of the you know, and the implementation of this these budgets is that the point Nairi made about how culture is really our best form of control because the thing I found is that what we really need to do is get the people right 
And if we are evaluating the people correctly, then actually along the way, we will make sure that these more macro outcomes are, are taken care of. And I wanted to spend a good amount of time, basically because Nairi and, and, and Nick, I think have covered the macro picture. I wanted to talk a little bit about the micro foundations of evaluation. What do we do to evaluate individual people so that we make sure that the system as a whole is getting its outcomes right? And here, the broad framework that we use um, in, in the Singapore Public Service is very similar to the idea of the body politic, if you, if you like. Um, you know, the body politic, not just in a macro sense, but in the individual as, as well. And we think about head qualities, heart qualities, hand qualities, as well as the qualities that are manifested in, in the lanes, right, in, in the doing. So I'll just say a bit about each of them, because I think they, each of them presents really interesting categories within which qualitative data is collected on individuals and very constant um, evaluation conversations are had between supervisors and, and their supervisees. Head qualities really include things like analysis and judgment. Do people appreciate the complexity of the issues that they're dealing with? Have they brought out the nuances of things? Do they understand the long-term systemic aims and not just the individual silos of the, the turf that they guard? Is there a sense of perspective? Do they bring a whole of government view to things rather than just uh, a single uh, bit of turf that they might be more interested in considering? Under heart qualities, we think about things like the ability to influence and inspire, right? Do you do that with your collaborators? Are people thinking about that in terms of their staff? Are they able to collaborate well and effectively across government jurisdictions and easy bailiwicks? Are people developing the teams that they're in? So are they interested not just in the immediate delivery of outcomes, but are they building a system and an overall culture for the long term, right, where, wherein institutional knowledge and memory and habits and instincts are actually well imbued? Um, hand qualities include things like motivation. Is there attention to results? Um, is there an attention to both the preset uh, results that were agreed upon between supervisor and supervisee, but is there also an openness to emergent results in the sense that I was talking about earlier when I referred to, to the Budget Implementation Committee? And is there also a motivation for excellence, right? Is there a sense of wanting to stretch people um, and outcomes so that they deliver to the best of their abilities, not just in terms of standards that are fairly mediocre? And the leg qualities are interesting because they're all about innovation and getting things done, right? Is there a sense of activity? Is there a sense of openness to outcomes and an attention to the impact of those outcomes? Now, what's really interesting, I think, in some, some of what we do is that whether it's with crisis um, budgets like the ones I mentioned or in more peacetime um, operations, is that we are really interested in the long-term effects. Uh, people like me, for instance, move around government. We change our jobs every three to, to five years. Um, and there is a danger with that sort of constant rotation that we end up focusing only on short-term outcomes because actually the long-term collateral damage will not be felt by us. We will have moved on. And, and one thing that we do here is that for those of us on this, this program that we call the administrative service and then where we move around in these rotations, it's similar to the UK fast stream program, except that we do it as a long term career, not just as a, a finite uh, set of terms. We're actually evaluated not just by our current boss, but by the previous two permanent secretaries whom we reported to as well. And what that means is if there are outcomes and evaluative criteria that emerge after we have left, if it is discovered that someone actually delivered really well on results, but did it with collateral damage in terms of staff welfare and overall institutional development, there is still accountability that can be had because the evaluations happen across a fairly long period of time. Um, and I think this is really important because we need to make sure that evaluation work happens in the long term and at the system level, not just at a very local level and in the short term. So I suspect that some of our budget implementation committee work now, you know, with the expenditure of this $93 billion is going to be happening for a fairly long time. Um, and even as we move through different roles, our, my successors and the successors of the others on the committee with me will all be thinking about this long term and the sense of global optimization so that we don't just get stuck in, in the rut of the now. I'll stop there and see what sorts of questions and discussion points come up. Thanks, Joe. Great, thanks, Aaron. And Simon, over to you. Okay, one of the big challenges of going last is that I'm just going to end up aggressively agreeing with everyone, I think. I, I wanted to start, when I was thinking about giving this talk, it took me back to a conversation I had about 15 years ago in New Zealand, and um, I was a lot younger then, and it was the height of uh, Blairite targets and terror. 
And I sat down with a guy in the New Zealand government who'd implemented this gigantic reform of primary care. I said, right, so how do you know if it works? Tell me about all the targets. Where are all the targets? And he sort of looked at me blankly. I said, well, there must be goals, right? Where's, where's your PSAs? Where's all of that? He said to me, he said, there's only 26 of these things. We just ring them up. And that was really the first time I started to really question what performance management is about and what it's for. Because um, we tend to see it as a tool of control. I think Nairi made a very strong case on this. We tend to see it as fundamentally, it's, it's a way that people who are higher up in the hierarchy try to control the behavior and actions of people lower down. And again, Nairi did a very good job, I think, of explaining why that's a problem, because you get short-termism, you get risk aversion, and actually you don't usually get the outcomes that you want because people in the system are trying to, to hit your targets and please you rather than to actually meet the goal. Um, Performance management could be a way to try and establish what works. And obviously, we've been trying to do that for a lot of the last decade. Um, my observation on, on that as a practitioner is that by the time we've worked out what works, it's usually too late to be useful. Um, and the sort of stuff that comes out of the What Works centres, by the time they've evaluated it to a really rigorous level, feels like common sense. Um, so in a way, the, the data we're getting lags our actual practice a lot of the time. So I guess my plea, which I think fits in what everyone else has said, my, my plea is that we should do what my mate from New Zealand was trying to do, which is we should use performance and see it as a way to create learning and to help us get things right as we go along. Um, I think that probably is quite a big shift in the way that we think about performance management. We've inherited a set of structures from the new public management, which are very much about upward accountability. Um, but as we move into a much more complex operating environment, um, I think we have to shift the way that we see accountability. And if you don't believe that the world is becoming more complex, um, we'll look at the last three or four months when we've all had to operate in extremely novel territory. Um, so we are entering a much more volatile world, a world where we have to try new things. I think government is starting to develop very effective tools to manage that. Um, a lot of them are imported from the digital world. So I think particularly about um, agile project management, which says, you know, don't have a big plan, which gets you to done, build a simple thing, test it, iterate it, grow it. I think that's a really exciting way of working. Um, I think design thinking is really important. So let's build policy that actually reflects the behaviours um, of the people that we're working with. Let's really understand their lives. And then finally, systems thinking is another hugely important tool for my practice anyway, which is, is telling us that in, in doing all of that, we can't just focus on our bit of the service. We have to focus on the whole life of the person in front of us and the way that we interface with everyone else. Those tools are really exciting. They're hugely powerful for helping government institutions adapt to a world where we have to learn as we go. Um, but I think they do, again, really complicate performance management because even if, even if you want to try and impose lots of top-down targets on people working with those tools, I'm not sure it would. Be, I'm not sure it's even possible because, for me at least, working with those tools, I feel accountable and responsible to citizens and residents in my borough. I feel accountable to, to my partners, to the people I work with in the council. Yes, of course, I feel responsible to the politicians. And of course, I want to hit their goals. But actually, on a day-to-day -day basis, what I'm doing is trying to get things right for the people that I'm serving. Um, and that's a very hard thing to do if I'm sort of trying to hit a target and report back all the time. So I think we are almost by necessity moving beyond the kind of a rigid new public management approach into something that feels a lot more fluid. Um, in terms of what you do about that, in terms of performance management, well, three three ideas, which I'm sure people will want to shoot down later, but worth a shot. Um, one is that um, I think we have to move away from the idea that data are there to um, to judge whether a thing is working or not and start working much more collaboratively to understand what the data is telling us. How do we get more people in the room with a ton of data trying to understand what it's telling us about our program? So it's really exploratory. Um, how do we involve the people who are affected and delivering policy much more in judging success? Now, I work in a local authority. I don't think anyone from central government has ever come to us to ask us whether we think what they're doing works. Um, sometimes they come to, to ask me if, if I think the thing they're, they're going to do will work before they do it. And they usually ignore me and do it anyway. Um, but actually, we're not involved in any kind of structured way in judging it. And neither are the people that we serve. So how could we create a much more collaborative sense of evaluation with the people who are actually doing on the ground? Um, I think if we'd had that culture in place before COVID, we'd have had a much more successful response as a nation um, because local government hasn't really been engaged in a substantial way in the central policy structure at all. Um, and we could have gotten a lot further, a lot faster if we had been. And then I guess the third bit, which I think speaks to the point Nairi made about culture, is you know, do we need to judge not only what the system's delivering, but the quality of the system? You know, are policymakers working in an environment that's characterised by trust and openness? Uh, what do we know about the relationships the policymakers are building, the quality and breadth of them? Have they got strong relationships across the civil service down into the people they're working with to deliver? 
Um, I'll end with a very small example of how we're starting to, to try and get this more right at Redbridge. Um, I have a chief executive who um, hates appraisals, so we decided to stop doing them. Um, we've invented a thing instead that we call check-ins. I don't think we're the first to do this. Um, but essentially what we've done is we've moved away from the standard sets and performance goals, check in with them at six months, check in with them after a year. And in part, we've done that because even after six months, it turns out the goals you set in the first place probably aren't right. I'm not sure I've ever gotten to the end of a year and still really have the same performance goals I had at the beginning. So we do these conversations and we do talk about performance, but it takes about 10 to 15 percent of the conversation. Much more of what we're doing is talking about values, the support those people need, their well-being and their career aspirations. And what we're trying to do in that, again, to come back to my example from New Zealand, is build a culture that's much less about trying to steer and control and it's much more about building the, the capability of people in our organisation to learn and do the right thing without having to constantly try and second guess them from the top. Thanks very much, Simon. Um, the first question from me to all of you, I mean, Nick mentioned that one of the differences between the civil service and the private sector is that there tend to be more diverse sets of objectives. But the other one, which several of you have also touched on, is the obvious point that you more often get a completely radical change of objectives when you have a new government coming in with intentionally different objectives from the governments who came before them. Just how do you, is there a way of squaring this circle of sort of building in longer term evaluation and a desire to pursue sort of good policy making and good behaviour within the civil service with the fact that you perhaps every five years get a completely different set of ministers coming in with their own objectives, both about what they're trying to achieve and potentially how they want to achieve that. And other ways, does, does the civil service need to be protected from that? Are there systems that could be put in place that would be sort of robust to those changes of direction from the top and still build on some of what you're talking about? I mean, if, if I jump in, you know, democracies have to balance both giving people a voice periodically to elect a government and at the same time harvesting the benefits of long term stable government. So in countries where governments change regularly and when the government changes, all the senior civil service change. So that's governments in the Americas, mostly where after an election, some 30,000 people change office in Mexico. Those governments in the academic scholarship are quite highly correlated with high levels of both legal and illegal corruption. And that's because the whole civil service becomes a kind of campaign and election machine because their very job relies on the politicians wanting them to do that job. And therefore, you know, they put all their efforts into ensuring those politicians win the election. And that leaves very little space for the public interest and the long term interest of government to be served. So you get this correlation between the big, you know, um, politically appointed civil service of countries and quite high levels of corruption. On the other hand, in countries like Denmark, where very, very few public servants change office with a change in government, you get the benefits of extraordinary stability, which brings knowledge, technocratic expertise. Now, I'm not saying we should be complacent and therefore just have a, you know, an, a permanent and unchanging civil service, but it's just to say that every democracy must intelligently balance that need for change and public voice to change their government and the need for stability in a very complex world where you need strong culture and you need highly expert people to navigate your way through quite quite difficult policy terrain. Would anyone else like to come on this one? I think this is really difficult. It, it, I think it's important to distinguish um, dif different areas of government. I think some areas are far less contested than others. I mean, take the example of revenue collection in Britain. Most governments want revenue raised efficiently and effectively. They might want to do it in different ways. But um, so it is rather, I would argue, it is relatively easy to, um, you know, put in place reasonably sensible um, performance management um, objectives and assessment in HMRC, say, than an area which is completely contested and everybody's always rearranging the deck chairs. Um, I can't immediately give you an example, but usually most people always want to um, reorganize the Department of Health, say, or, 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 or education. Um, I think it's easier in countries 
Um, I mean, the Danish example is an interesting one because it's a very cohesive society and it tends to be governed by coalition governments. I mean, they can be of left uh, inclination or right inclination. Um, I think also countries which have federal structures or a, a strong and legitimate local government. Um, also, um, it encourages a rather more consensual approach which militates against the rearranging deck chairs tendency. Because the problem with British government and with the best one in the world, local government, because it doesn't actually raise very much revenue itself um, and because people don't care enough about it or relate enough to it, about it, is always going to be kicked around by central government in England. And I think it's great pity. Um, I think it's wrong, but that's just the way of the world. Um, so, um, I've now completely lost track of the point I was trying to make, um, so I'm going to keep quiet. Thanks very much, Nick. Um, my next question is, is perhaps more to um, Simon, Nick and Neri, because um, it's interesting to hear Aaron's reflections on this from Singapore. You all talked about the need perhaps move away from focusing so much on targets and measuring outcomes in some sense um, because of the problems that that can engender and um, the need therefore to have a sort of culture of good performance within the civil service that drives the right behaviours and it's very interesting to hear how Singapore has been doing this. Um, from the other three of you what what are your sort of reflections on that is that enough um, and I guess particularly Simon mentioned the need to sort of get feedback from the users of services on the other end. And how do you build that into understanding whether you have the right culture um, that's driving the right results? Um, or do we still need some element of really measuring the outcomes of policies to understand what's working and what's not um, beyond just that we have the right behaviours going on? I, I certainly didn't mean to imply that we shouldn't measure outcomes because we, we should I suppose you know what, what what I'm less keen on is measuring lots of the things that we do on the way to the outcomes because I think actually we have to experiment and find and feel our way towards outcomes um, and too much of targetry tries to target things that aren't really outcomes at all um, so no I think outcomes are really really important and then exploring the way that you get there um, I suppose what I, what I was trying to get at is that I, I think one of the things that's really powerful about local governments is that we have quite short feedback loops um, so, you know, if we're doing something that's wrong, we hear about it pretty fast. Um, I think that's also an advantage that countries like New Zealand and perhaps Singapore have as well, that if you're working on a smaller footprint, something goes wrong, your politicians hear about it. I come to dread residents complaining about things on Twitter because I'll have the leader of the council on, to my, on the phone in five minutes. Um, but I guess the question is, you know, how do you replicate a bit more of that in central government? How do you get those feedback loops working better? So there's a stronger sense of policymakers having that accountability and responsiveness. But equally, how do you do that in a, in a more horizontal way? Yeah, we, we privilege for obvious reasons and for good reasons that the horizontal relationship between ministers and civil servants. But actually, if we also prioritised horizontal relationships with other delivery organisations and the vertical relationship down to residents and delivery bodies, I think we'd find ourselves in a much richer situation, which it, it would feel to ministers like they had less day-to-day -day control, but they wouldn't really. They'd be getting more of what they wanted ultimately. I'll jump in then. Um, yes, I think... It's not a question of pitting culture against targets. It's a question of thinking about how you use and generate targets in a way which reinforces the culture that you're trying to build. I, um, I was saying before this panel that Singapore bases the performance bonuses of its senior civil service. Um, part of that performance is what happens to Singapore's GDP. As I understand it, it, there used to be a component, which is what's happened to the household wealth of the bottom 20% of Singaporeans, which is really interesting when you think that, about the role, the important role that government plays, including in Britain, in looking after those who are left out or dropped through the safety net. So now those kinds of targets are brilliant because they're focusing on the purpose of government, they're focusing on the final goal. It's also about how you set targets. So if you set, if, if your message is, we don't trust you to do your job, so we're going to set you the following target. You're a police officer, we're gonna set you the following target and you only get a bonus if you meet this target. The message is, we don't trust you to do your job. So you've already torn up the culture of the agency that you're trying to work with. Whereas if the message is instead, 
we actually do trust you to do your job. So you tell us what it is that you would observe after a year if you did your job outstandingly well. In other words, you set targets which actually reinforce the intrinsic reason why you do your job. And, and then you see, you know, it's very interesting to me that when a previous government offered police chiefs performance bonuses, half of police chiefs refused to take them. And why did they refuse? They refused because they didn't want young men on the street saying, you're only arresting me so that you'll make your bonus, so that you make money out. They felt that it was cheapening the reason that they had become police officers in the first instance, which was to serve their community. And it just highlights there is this, there is this um, uh, trade-off. There's a potential crowding out of the intrinsic purpose of, of public service. Gemma, I just thought I'd jump in on some of this as well, because I, I think it's a fascinating discussion. Um, I agree you know, that, that we can't jettison outcomes entirely. What we are talking about here is that you know, what we can't have is a simplistic, reductionist, overly rigid application and creation of outcomes. Uh, I agree completely with Simon, for instance, that we need to be iterative in our outcome definition and you know, allow for the fact that they need to evolve, particularly because what we're measuring are never simple technical things, right? They're always complex, adaptive and highly nuanced things. And that means that the measurement is going to be a challenge attribution is a challenge um, you know how do we know that person x contributed to outcome y and not a combination of person x a b c d and e i think that is a particularly critical thing and, and that's partly why as nairi mentioned you know we focus on macro measures like gdp and pegging at least some of our bonuses to that but some of it is also an individual performance um, element uh, nairi i will check for you whether or not we still do you know the bottom 20 percent thing and, and, and update you and maybe the whole panel uh, separately because i'm not sure if we do that or not, but I think it's worth checking. Um, but one thing I think we don't do enough, um, and we are moving on a journey in this, is we don't do enough 360 feedback. Uh, there is a bit of a fear, I think, that sometimes, you know, if, I, if we evaluate people based on the views that come from everybody that works with them, right, subordinates, peers, as well as superiors, there can be a bit of a distortionary effect. And that's about building culture, actually, because when there is a proper culture in place, then there actually can be information that is revelatory that comes out of a 360 process. Uh, so we use it currently for developmental reasons, right? People read through their 360 reports, they reflect on what is being said, what is not being said, but we don't use it as a rigid develop, uh, evaluation tool. We don't say that if you score below you know, X on a, a particular performance metric on the 360, that you are somehow going to receive a lower performance grade. It's taken as a package, as an overall developmental conversational tool. The other thing that I think we really need to do a lot more of, and all governments I think need to do this, is listen to citizens a lot more. And Simon, you, you mentioned this you know, in, in quite some length in your remarks, but I think we need to be talking to the people who policies are meant to be affecting. Is this actually working for them? You know, what is the ethnographic data that comes back from recipients and, and beneficiaries? And I think a lot of governments don't do this because we fear that these things might be unobjective in some way. But it's precisely the unobjective lived realities that sometimes we need to be coming to grips with. And so I think what we need there is not a jettisoning of quantitative data, but a complementing of that quantitative approach with these narratives and stories and anecdotes, which I think taken together give us a much richer picture. Just to just to reinforce that, I think I mean, I think 360 degree appraisal is great. I'd also um, I think at a macro level, both staff surveys and regular surveying of users of services tell you something. So if I look back at the early part of the, of, of, of the decade just finished, there's a view that austerity was making, having a terribly damaging effect on public services. And that's how it may have felt for some people. But I can remember sort of um, opinion surveys at the time generally showed that um, people were still reasonably impressed by the quality of services they were getting. So that, that's an interesting data point. The only other point I would make is, I think in certainly the British civil service, we, have, we became overly hung up on performance pay. I think, I think you need a good performance management system, but spending hours and hours arguing about trivial um, increases in pay, um, I think is quite damaging. It's, it's inefficient. 
in, um, uh, lots of work on happiness by Richard Layard and others uh, suggests it just gets people stressed. So um, I, I, mean, I used to be a believer in performance-related pay in the public sector. I'm not now. And um, rather like um, uh, the, the, the police chiefs just referred to, um, you know, I'd have much preferred not to have got any bonus at all as a permanent secretary. And indeed, for many years, I refused to have one until um, I realised that was pointless too. Can I just jump in, Gemma, and say the one thing that none of us have really talked about is um, how um, performance management might help ministers become more effective ministers. And I think that's really important, that ministers come in to lead a government department, usually with almost no experience of that department or of its issues. And many do an extraordinary job, a very hardworking job of trying to get on top of that, but having some way of helping helping them but be their best at doing that and then ensuring that government itself has some way of ensuring that they put the most effective ministers for particular departments in those posts and leave them there long enough so that they can actually manage that department because we you know we're having this discussion as though civil service performance is independent of ministerial leadership, which would be a travesty of our democratic system. We expect ministers to lead and civil servants to serve them. And therefore, the consistency and leadership offered by the minister is a very important part of this equation, which I think too often we just skim past. A department that has three different ministers in one year is going to be very hard pressed to effectively deliver on the political program of the government. Thanks, Laurie. That's great. And actually, that touches on one of the very popular questions we've had coming in on the, the Q&A, which is how can um, civil servants get uh, number 10 in particular to see success in broader terms than just the sort of daily news management um, process? So I don't know uh, if anyone would like to come in on, on that one. Well, well I think I think this is quite important, and um, it does uh, does tie with Nagari's point about um, uh, the skills of uh, people occupying ministerial and indeed prime ministerial posts. Many of whom have got to where they are, I don't know, by writing amusing articles in the Spectator or or whatever. And and um, one of the problems I encountered when I was on the Permanent Secretary Pay Committee is that we'd spend hours sifting through all data and making recommendations. And then it went to the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister of the day would overrule on the basis that, you know, they're rather light techs and they're really helpful, whereas Y had turned up with their Secretary of State and argued with him or her, as the case may be. And um, so, uh, I, I think quite a lot of this hinges on um, the, the cabinet secretary and head of the civil service, one of whose jobs is to educate the prime minister of the day. And prime ministers actually generally get quite interested in this after a while because they suddenly realise they've got to live with the consequences of their announcements. So it's, it's not hopeless by any means. Um, and similarly, I think prime minister's advisors um, have a role, political advisors, in just trying to anchor um, the, you know, performance and appointment regime uh, on the basis of capacity and ability to deliver, because that's what matters if they're going to survive in the long run. And just come back to Nagari's point, if, you know, Department for Business, there, there was this period when the Secretary of State changed practically once a year over about a 10-year period. And I was very lucky to be at the Treasury, where during that period, I probably got through only two chances of the Exchequer. And that makes a huge difference, because if someone is there for a length of time, and it's true of prime ministers once they're there for a length of time, they kind of begin to realise what matters. And they move beyond the politics of announcement to the politics of delivery. and. Um, that is essential if you want to have an effective public service. Obviously, I, I come at this from, from more of a local level, but I, I suppose what 
my, my reflection on the question about, about ministers and particularly about leaders, prime ministers, is you know their focus on the news cycle and all the rest of it is not irrational, right? These aren't stupid people. These are people doing an incredibly difficult job. And I think sometimes we act as if, you know, that the fact that they're not just sitting in Downing Street planning out long-term plans for transforming the world is somehow a failure on their part. It's, it's not. It's just part of the job. And I suppose, you know, my, my reflection on that from my experience in local government is, you know, as public servants, we have to be able to do both for them at the same time. Um, we, we have to be able to have their back on the day-to-day -day media cycle stuff. We have to try and catch the stuff that's going to trip them up. It's, it's just part of the job. But equally, I, I, I've yet to meet a politician who doesn't want a legacy, who doesn't want something longer term than just getting through the day. And I think, you know, when, when you appeal to that part of their brains, I think they, they recognise, you know, that this is a government which, you know, yes, is doing a lot of street fighting, but actually it's also got some very, very big long-term commitments. I mean, once close to my heart, the levelling up agenda. You know, God knows how you do that. That requires sustained attention over a period, you know, if it can even be done, it requires sustained attention over a period of, of decades, probably. Um, and yet, you know, if you're Boris Johnson and you want to be the man who fixed that, which is arguably also key to your next election, then you have a long-term agenda, don't you? And we can play to that as public servants. Thanks, Simon. Yeah, all I would say is that Look, to win government, you have to know what people are thinking and what they're worried about and focus groups and such like really help with that. But once you're in government, what's very interesting is the extent to which people optimise choices within your agenda. So, you know, there's an old political economy study that asks about whether governments across a large number of countries were simply doing what the major business interests wanted. And rather to the surprise of the political economists, whose whole model was premised on the idea that government just does what business wants, they discovered that most of business didn't really know in the abstract what they wanted and that government set the agenda. It was Government would say, right, we can do A or B. And then business knew what it wanted. It either wanted A or it wanted B. And I think that subtle point is a very important one for, for politicians transitioning from the campaign into government and understanding that their role is actually structuring these choices in a meaningful way and that the, pop, the population will then focus on the two choices that have been put in front of them. And so the focus group actually becomes a rear view mirror. It does not become a good instrument for looking at what's ahead of you. Gemma, I'll just say one very quick thing. I mean, I come from a system that is characterized by political longevity that's slightly different from what the UK uh, goes through. Um, but, but I will say this, I mean, we go through change as well. And I think really the question that we're grappling with here is about how systems deal with impetus for change, but at the same time drive towards stability. And, and one thing that we found has been very really important for us in Singapore is you know, our ministers move around. Our permanent secretaries also rotate because, you know, like me, there are programs where you know, they, they've done, they, will, they will do different jobs over different tenures. My current permanent secretary has been permanent secretary in five different places, including her, her current posting, which actually brings a huge amount of wealth, actually, of experience. Uh, but we can discuss that uh, another time. What I do find is keeping in mind the system is really important when we make decisions about how exactly movements need to happen. We knew there was going to be an election in Singapore sometime with, you know, with, within the second half of this year and early next year. We just had it a couple of weeks ago. And that means that the permanent secretaries kind of have an unwritten understanding that they're not going to be moving themselves around at that sort of time because you know there might well be cabinet reshuffles. They would wait till say a year and a bit after. And there's no fixed rule to this, right? But it's one of those pieces of, I suppose, you know, common sense and wisdom that, that guides the, the process. Similarly, if we know that a minister is about to move or is due to retire, we might not have the senior civil servants in that ministry move at the same uh, sort of time. Um, if my permanent secretary is due to move, I'm probably not going to be moving at any time soon. If I'm due to move, they might you know, do that only after there's been some stability at both, at both the level above me, the permsec, as well as the directors just below me. So I think keeping in mind that role, right, that we have as stewards of systems is, is really quite key because it helps us to realize that even amidst the vagaries of electoral cycles, there can be ways of actually achieving some level of optimum performance for the organizations that we serve in, even though there has to be some amount of flux as well. Thank you. Um, moving on to our next question, this may be the last one we're going to have time for before our session runs out. Um, this question comes from Tanya Filer, who asks, how can evaluations be used more productively to build collective institutional memory and know-how on what works and what doesn't, particularly in an environment of frequent rotation of people between roles, projects and departments? Who would like to 
start with that Nick, you look on the edge of your seat. Yes, uh, just briefly, I think it's, it comes back to the stewardship point. I think it is incumbent on people who are running any public service to distill and build knowledge, to make the institution, to put the institution in a position where it can it can survive and prosper even in an environment where people are moving around a lot. And that basic knowledge management is really important. It's one reason why I became obsessed with history when I was at the Treasury, because this institution seemed the most unhistorical of places, yet history had an uncanny knack, if not quite repeating itself. Many of the same forces were at work in every trade cycle. So I would um, I, I would argue that you know this is a really important priority for any public sector leader. How do you um, ensure that there's a really good knowledge base? And I would I would throw in um, Simon spoke of the culture of trust and openness. Absolutely vital because it turns out that the kind of knowledge and evaluation that's most effective in government is verbal, not written. That filing cabinets are filled with papers, data systems are replete with them, but actually it's when people speak that they're most frank and it's also that, that which most policymakers remember. And that means that you've got to have a real culture of trust and openness to pick up the phone. If I put two markers down for this government, it's to ask on each thing they're trying to do, who are they sharing information with? Who are they sharing data with? before they make a decision, not as they make it or after it, but who are they sharing? Are they sharing it with local government? Are they sharing the data with business? Are they sharing data with the charitable sector? In other words, engaging people in the decision-making itself. And then are they asking themselves, who outside of their control are they now relying upon to make this work? And, and if, if the answer is nobody, then what they're doing is probably not gonna work. And I, I think that's, uh, um, it's, it's not so much about learning as about back to these relationships of trust that are vital to make government work because there's almost nothing that government can do entirely on its own. And the more it actually works in partnership in defining the problem, not just solving it, the more likely it is to succeed. Zimmer, I'll jump in on this as well. Uh, first of all, hi, Tanya. It's good to hear a question from you. Um, we've had many good conversations about digital government uh, before, so um, thank you for the, the, the question. I wanted to answer this in two uh, lots, of two, two kind of broad buckets. One is about technology, which is where you know, Tanya and I have actually done and had many conversations before, because I think the, we do have far better technological capacity these days to deal with the institutional memory and data problem than we used to. But two questions need to be answered there. First of all, the supply of technology has to be done well, right? We need to design systems that actually are going to work and are useful. And that means our, 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 our civil servants have to be part of that whole process in designing the system so that they work. Um, they need to be measuring the right types of data. We need to be collecting and connecting as well as curating that data in ways that are meaningful. Um, and I think the, the supply end is therefore critical. But almost more important, I would think the demand side is actually key. You can have the most beautiful data collection systems, but if they're not used, then they really don't serve much of a point. And that means that we need to build instincts amongst um, the staff of a civil service and politicians to actually use data, right? They need to be interested in analytics. They need to be to want to know, right, what, how many words, how many times they've used a particular word in a speech. They need to be able to ask for the graphs and the visualizations of particular relationships and, and correlations. And if we don't have that demand, then the supply isn't going to be well used. Um, so I think both of those are necessary as we develop the technological systems. But I wanted to end with one small thought, which is not really about technology at all, uh, which is highly analog, but it's a lesson I learned from foreign services all over the world. Nearly every diplomat, after they've finished uh, a posting, an overseas posting especially, will write what is known as a valedictory report. Or, you know, they might call it other things, but it's really a, a piece of writing that captures the issues they worked on, who they networked with, what worked in their overall outreach strategies, what didn't work, 
and where they think their failings were that their successor needs to build on. And this is always, nearly always written as a letter or some kind of um, communication directly to that successor. So over time, they get less and less relevant. But I find these documents really powerful reading. And I've tried to make it such that whenever I join a team, um, we all write valedictory reports for one another. So when anyone leaves, anyone in a leadership position will write a piece that talks about what they've learned, what they didn't, what they worked on, what they didn't, and ensure that, that, piece, that those pieces of, of knowledge are captured. And you can imagine if, you, if we ever could do semantic analysis of some of this material to look at what kinds of words appeared frequently in initial phases and how that evolved over time, I suspect that could be a really rich source of data. So the analog and the digital, when they come together, could really be quite powerful. Thank you. Simon, would you like to have the last word? <laughs> um, I, don't, I, I don't really have much to add on that one, to be honest. Um, I mean, partly because I think, I suppose, because I think it should be an ongoing process of learning. So, you know, it's, it's not about passing on documents, is it? It's about passing on, a, a trying to pass on a, a living culture and trying to embed that in the organisation and recognising that if you get the culture right, then most other things follow from that. Thank you all very much. Unfortunately, we are now slightly over our time. So thank you to Neri, to Simon, to Nick and to Aaron um, for joining us today. And thank you very much again to Oracle for sponsoring today's events. Um, please do join us for the final two events today. So in an hour's time, we have Jonathan Slater in conversation with Bronwyn Maddox. And then at 5.30, we have a session which will be chaired by my colleague Jill Rutter talking about getting the civil service outside London. Um, I've been spending the last few weeks outside London. It, works very well. Um, so that'll be a good uh, discussion later on. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.